Just in case you hadn't realised already, I love talking about sex. It's the topic I nerd out on the most because it's one of the things that impacts our lives the most and yet we're still so reluctant to talk about it openly and honestly. But it's more than just a keen interest. I've worked in sexual health since 2015 and for five years had the pleasure of working at Brook, the UK's leading sexual health charity. I've taught sex ed in classrooms all across the country. I've trained professionals on how to be more informed and inclusive when it comes to talking about sex. And I spent years running a condom distribution team in London where we handed out 80,000 condoms a year. So my knowledge of relationship and sex education comes from a lot of direct experience. One of the other reasons why I care about this topic so much is that like basically every other person I know, the sex ed I got at school was really crap. And it was a massive contributing factor to me having really bad sex for a long time. I only really realised I was allowed to enjoy it when I was 20, a whole five years since I started having sex. And topics as basic as consent were things I had to learn as I went along, which just isn't good enough. I'm Ruby Rare, and this is In Touch, a documentary series offering an intimate and playful education around the different ways that we connect to sex relationships and our bodies. In this podcast, we're talking about sex in an explicit and honest way. You might hear the occasional bit of strong language. It's also worth mentioning that I'm a survivor of sexual assault, and this is something I'll be mentioning throughout the series. Please be kind to yourself while listening. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or are looking for support for any of the themes discussed, check the episode description for resources and helplines. A lot of my work focuses on educating adults, because as it turns out, if you have rubbish sex education at school, you can still be pretty clueless as a grown-up. So many topics fall under sex ed. There are the pillars of consent, contraception and STIs, but also more emotive topics like healthy relationships, porn, gender and sexuality and so much more. We never really stop learning about relationships and sex throughout our lives. But being a teenager is such a formative time, and the way that we're introduced to these vast topics is vital, which is why we're spending a whole episode focusing on this from the perspective of young people. It feels weird to be sat down and having like a formal recorded chat with you. It is, suddenly it makes it a bit Hello mother, we're going to talk about a thing now. (laughs) We're here to talk about sex, because you might be aware it's something I talk quite a lot about. All the time. Will she stop? (laughs) No, never. (laughs) Like lots of us, when I was a teenager, my mum and I had chats about sex, which were a bit awkward and clunky. I sat down with Mama Rare, also known as Marlene, to reflect on that time. But we started off by talking about her very own terrible sex education and one video in particular that has really stuck in her mind. (laughs) Sorry, I'm thinking about it now. It's really making me laugh because it is so bizarre. So it was a a swimming pool that has all those little dank cubicles and suddenly the cubicle doors swing open and naked girls leap into the water (laughs) while they talked about being a girl and having periods and that at some point in puberty, breasts will appear and pubic hair will grow in the correct places. Um, I remember it was a man doing the voiceover and it was very clipped, sort of like 1940s voice and really no information whatsoever. Then it was almost like, right, that's done now. <laughs> Television off, wheeled back out, 
That's it. You've got everything no you need to know. conversation whatsoever about anything. I think most of us have a memory like this. A really cringy video that a teacher played in order to avoid having an actual conversation with us. And a lot of the time, while the imagery may have stuck with us, the weirdness might have overshadowed the actual message or information it was trying to portray. Tez was at school far more recently than my mum and I, and unfortunately, not much has changed. One of the things I remember most about my sex ed was uh, this video of a singing condom called Johnny Condom. <laughs> it's a video of puppets singing condoms, which don't even look like condoms. It kind of briefly sings about how condoms protect you from viruses. It looked very outdated and it, it sounds very outdated, like what they're saying. It's not all terribly misjudged, euphemistic videos. There is such great sex education out there, and I know that because I've delivered some of it. There are loads of people who are deeply passionate about this topic and have the skills to work with young people in school settings and out of school. But the issue is getting access to it because it's a bit of a postcode lottery. There are so many factors that prevent a school or youth club getting someone from a sexual health charity like Brooke to come in. A lot of this comes down to funding. We've been living under a conservative government for over a decade, which has led to a deprioritization of education of all kinds. The majority of the teachers and professionals I've worked with want this to be in the classroom. They just don't have the time or resources to make it happen. Zara Albajawi is an education coordinator at Brook, and we spent a few years working alongside each other, which was a really happy time of my life. She spoke to me about the landscape of sex education. I think that we have to kind of see ourselves as one bit on this young person's journey. You could go into a consent class, for example, and you can come away really disheartened. Like, I think that has happened to anyone who teaches consent because lots of stuff comes up, lots of myths, lots of conditioning that people have had for years and years and years. You tackle what you can in that hour and you go away thinking, how much would that have really changed that outlook in one hour? And what we need to remember is that that could be the first time anyone has ever sat down and talked to those people about consent. The education system is a really vital part of this journey. And home is another. Some families will choose to have direct conversations about sex and relationships. But even in the ones that don't, we all pick up implicit messages from the family dynamics around us. Let's fast forward to you being a mum and suddenly having to small children. What did it feel like knowing that those conversations were on their way? The first time I'd had to explain the actual penis and vagina-esque-ness of sex, you had that confused, you know, the completely normal face of why on earth would you want to do that? And I sort of explained it as it's how, how grown-ups play and you were fine with that. I remember us both sitting on my bed and you giving me a book, a, a sex book. I do remember the book because I spent ages trying to find a good book. And instead of having the very earnest conversation, I thought it would be good to have a bit of a chat, give you a nice book to have a look at. And then if you've got questions, let's have a chat about it when you've explored the book a bit. You must have asked me a few things because I remember a specific thing you asked me about and we had a talk about it. And then you went to school and told your friends what I'd said. And they told their mothers what I'd said. 
And then it came back and really bit me in the leg because a lot of people were very angry. They didn't want their child to know this stuff. I think it might have been something to do with blowjobs. <laughs> I, I think that was probably because that'll do it. Yeah. That's a hard position for you to be in. Yeah, as a it mom. is. Because you don't want to lie to your kids. You know, because of the work that you've been doing and the conversations we've been having, it just strikes me as incredibly sad and woeful. And, you know, if you think about people my generation and maybe why they're only figuring things out later in life, that's probably why. Yeah. <laughs> um, because no, no conversations were encouraged. Whether it's at home or at school, the shame that young people pick up from adults' own relationships to sex is really overlooked. How can we expect young people to form healthy relationships with sex when the people who are teaching them this stuff, both formally and not, are still trying to figure it out themselves? My name is Dougie Boyd and I am Director of Education at Brooke. Dougie is my old boss and I've learned a lot from him about creating educational environments where young people's experiences are prioritised. So my sex education was one 50-minute lesson and it was year seven science, and we watched a video for 50 minutes. That was the beginning and the end of it. It was prohibited at that time to promote gay relationships and a gay lifestyle as being acceptable. So there was absolutely no conversation or discussion about LGBT issues. It was pretty dire. As enthusiastic as we are in the sex ed world, change is a gradual thing. Take the lasting impact of Section 28, a piece of legislation brought in by Thatcher in 1988, which forbade teachers from promoting a homosexual lifestyle in schools. It was only abolished in 2003, so half the time I was in school, it was still in effect. And even though the legislation has changed, it still left its mark on the education system. Many of today's school leaders will have been training or beginning their careers when Section 28 was still in place. Before working in sexual health, Dougie was an English teacher. Hearing the experience of delivering sex ed from the perspective of a teacher who'd not been trained is really important. Interestingly, in our PGCE teacher training, there was absolutely no mention of sex and relationships education at all. And so a lot of school senior leaders at the moment are coming from an equally debilitating place of not having good education in school, not being equipped for it through their PGC or through their training, and years and years of very, very poor practice in schools that they are probably coming into and starting to lead now. So it's a big challenge. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with. A juicy crime story and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments. And you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. 
Recently, there's been another big change in England and Wales. In 2019, the Relationships and Sex Education curriculum got updated for the first time since 2000 and is now mandatory to teach. I've obviously read that curriculum and it's a great improvement from what we had previously. Just think about how much our lives have changed since the start of the millennium. Our access to porn, the way that we date and learn about sex have all been completely transformed by the internet. So an updated curriculum has been long overdue. But it's still by no means perfect. Pleasure isn't included once. A topic so important we'll be spending a whole episode on it later. If you're not having these conversations at home and the education system is still catching up, where do young people turn? Shall we say it together? Porn. In a recent BBC Three survey of people aged 18 to 25, 55% of men and 34% of women said porn had been their main source of sex ed. Which is really problematic, because porn isn't designed to be educational. It's fantasy. And in many ways, it doesn't reflect the sex we have in our own lives. When I was teaching in schools, I specialised in sessions about porn. I was walking into classrooms where most of the young people had watched and were being influenced by porn, but very few of them had had an adult openly talk about it with them. And of course, not all young people are coming across porn intentionally. Despite legislation to make porn available for over 18s only, it's so widely accessible that lots of young people will stumble upon it or be shown it before they're really ready to see something so explicit. It's easy to infantilize young people and start speaking for them. I'm a big believer in young people having agency and valuable insight on these topics. Abby Wright and Shireen Muller are theatre makers, and alongside Matt Reagan, co-created the theatre piece Why is the Sky Blue in 2018. They interviewed over 10,000 young people about their experiences with porn and sex education, and then used those words to create a collection of songs and monologues performed by young people. You'll hear Abby's voice first, followed by Shireen. I had worked with young people and seen the impact that pornography had on the way they thought about themselves and the way they related to other people. And we knew children as young as six were seeing pornography, which is a thing in itself that I think a lot of people can't believe and find quite jaw-dropping. I think that thing about allowing young people to have a voice and be empowered, that was really important. Placing these young people at the heart of the piece and forcing adults to actually listen to children's experiences, which adults don't usually do. So you have kids being exposed to pornography before they've held hands with someone. The thing that struck me next was speaking to older children, telling me about their experiences of sexting. And I remember speaking to my contact at Bernardo's and her saying to me, you know, Children have always shown each other their bits. This is how they learn and they grow and they come to understand what things are, you know. And you could see sexting as a kind of extension of that. And then I suppose as you, as you start to get a little bit older, as you start to get into secondary and kids are starting to explore their own sexuality, the kind of shocking things from conversations there or the striking things were pornography sort of being used as a template for these sexual encounters, copying pornography in sex and that going for sort of both genders. 
The world of porn is vast. A lot of the mainstream porn, which is free to view online, exaggerates much of the objectification, misogyny and racism that happens in real life, which can have a massive impact on self-esteem and the way that we view sex. This can be tough even for adults, and we'll be unpacking that in a later episode. But when this is your main source of sex ed as a teenager, it can become even harder to reverse. Porn shouldn't be a substitute for sex education. And yet, when the sex ed available is limited, it's no wonder young people turn to it. One of the things that came up a lot was there just being no reference to queer sexuality or, or just to how you do it, you know? And similarly for the trans community, there just being sort of no representation or help really with that experience in schools. And so people finding that actually pornography is really helpful in that instance. I think it's also a bit about us kind of realising as adults that it's not the same as it was when we were young people and teenagers. How we learnt maybe about sex then from our friends or maybe from magazines or whatever. We kind of think that that is how the young, young people nowadays are learning about it, possibly. But when you think about stuff online, how much more intense those images are, how much more pervasive they are than the stuff that we were growing up with. There's a fine line between protecting young people and children and also giving them the space to learn and ask questions. It's not easy, which is why we need experts taking this on. People who handle subjects sensitively can be positive as well as being trained to recognise when something might be going wrong, instead of people blundering into it and shutting down a lot of natural, curious behaviour. I've had young people ask me so many times, like, is it okay to masturbate? People don't understand that like young people especially go through a lot of sexual shame because of the lack of sex education that they get in. So it's really important to teach them about pleasure and to teach them that exploring themselves is okay. There's not just porn that you can find on the internet. There is an amazing community of sex educators online, including Rakaya and me. We chatted about how important these aspects of sex ed can be. Young people are using the internet a lot. They exist online a lot. So in general, I think it helps so much because it's easy access as well. Sex education still has a long way to go in terms of how people are receiving it from the two places that I always say is the most important place to receive it, which is home and school. So it's no wonder that a lot of people they search for it online and I'm so glad. I wish I had people like us growing up. Like I remember I was having discharge for like two years and I went on the Always website every single day reading it because they said this is a sign that you're going to get your period. But I used to always wonder when is my period going to come? Stuff like that. I could only go on like a website. There was, there was nothing else. There's no like resources, no packs, no nothing. Like Rakaya, a chunk of my work nowadays is delivering sex ed online through social media. I think this is a real force for good. I love the sex positivity community on Instagram, but it's not without its problems. Many social media platforms, Instagram included, ruthlessly censor social media content. And because social media is about delivering bite-sized chunks of information, a lot of it can be watered down. It becomes oversimplified and because it becomes oversimplified it 
ends up being really repetitive. There's not really any depth to what people are saying. It's just like, yeah, have a whack, grab your dildo, have a whack. I guess it's because of the whole influencer thing, which ends up commercializing it as well. If the space is being commercialized like that, it's no wonder that people start to oversimplify what they're saying as well. I am a big fan of sex ed on social media. You'd hope so, because it's something I do a lot of the time. But it's important to acknowledge that the sex ed that shows up on your feed isn't a substitute for more in-depth conversations. Relationship and sex education really get to the heart of how we connect as humans. And we all have differing opinions of what that looks like. While there is progress, there's still a lot of reluctance to change attitudes. A lot of the discourse that young people and adults are exposed to, particularly around gender and around gender identity, but also around sexuality, also around pleasure. I think a lot of the discourse is toxic. We are seeing the blacklisting of lots of organisations who used to do really, really good work in schools. In Brook, we regularly have requests from schools to not speak about specific topics or specific aspects of contraception because the affiliated community, whether it's a religious community or a community of parents or the wider community, often in the heat and the fury of the discourse, particularly on social media, the needs and rights of the young people gets lost. So it feels like the the voices that challenge the work that we do and, and the work that lots of other organisations do, it feels like those voices are louder now than they were five to ten years ago. Interestingly, in Brooke, we've seen a drop in the amount of inquiries for support around LGBT professionals training. We've seen a drop in the amount of inquiries for people wanting support and training around gender training. And what I think might be happening is people might be thinking, this is too controversial, we can't touch this. They're making decisions based upon the needs of their external PR, based upon the needs of of, um, a wider community group. And I think that's a really depressing place for us to be in as educators. In the new 2019 curriculum, It's stressed that LGBT plus content should be integrated into the wider curriculum rather than delivered as a separate standalone lesson. But it's still very vague and the onus is on the school to decide the ways that they teach this. If teachers aren't trained to be really confident delivering gender and sexuality education, it can go wrong even if they have the best intentions. As a queer person with no queer sex education while I was at school, I know firsthand how difficult it can be when certain topics are skimmed over. Morgan left school recently and he had a similar experience. I was probably around 11 when I sort of was like aware of the fact that I felt a certain disconnect to, you know, being grouped with the other girls. But at that age, not having the knowledge of the fact that, you know, being trans is a thing and not having the language to put to how I felt, I dismissed that. There was never any discussion at all in high school of gay sex, queer sex, and it was so alienating because I was like, am I ever going to be able to have a sort of relationship in which I can be intimate with another person? And I went to a Catholic college 
it was more comprehensive than high school because it actually kind of talked about different forms of contraception other than just condoms. But it always had this undertone of kind of like, well, the only surefire way to make sure that you don't get pregnant is to just not have sex at all. And it was like, well, that's not exactly very effective. There's a lot of complicated history when it comes to sex and faith. Until a few years ago, my belief was just that young people have the right to access inclusive sex education separate to faith. But I've come to realise it's more nuanced, and I have Zara to thank for that. Sexual health and relationships and sex education, it can be a bit of a bubble. And I want to hear religious sex educators and people from different ethnicities talking about sex education because all of these things are important and bring different perspectives. It is a bit of a personal interest too, being dual heritage, being Muslim at various points in my life, even if I don't necessarily identify as strongly with that now and it might not be a practice in Muslim, it definitely still is part of my culture and it's something that I'm surrounded by. In 2019, protests took place outside Parkfield Community School in Birmingham, opposing no outsiders a project created by Andrew Moffat to discuss differences and some queer identities in an age-appropriate way. The project uses books about a dog that doesn't feel like it fits in, two male penguins that raise a chick together, and a boy who likes to dress up as a mermaid. The protesters were mostly parents who had children at the school and opposed the project because it contradicted their faith. And when the press got hold of the story, it really polarised both sides and simplified the issues. And I get it. This was a very divisive headline, and my first reaction was to outright oppose the protesters. But it was through conversations with Zara that I realised that initial reaction missed out all the nuance. I've met the teacher at the primary school who created the No Outsiders programme and seen him present it since. And it's, you know, it's a good programme. And they found themselves in a very unfortunate situation. Thankfully, situations like that don't come up very often. That was quite an extreme case of parents not being happy with RSE. I think where I had an issue, though, was that people, you know, very well intentioned would then come out and just be very clear cut and say, "Okay, well, that's bigoted and that's the end of the conversation. We're just going to keep providing this education because young people need it. And Whilst I think that's true, I think the education is good and that young people should have it. That's not the way we build relationships. It's not the way we build trust. A lot of this is down to clear communication and reassurance because parents can hear the word sex education and jump to a fairly extreme conclusion. I work with faith schools and I have put a lot of groundwork in, you know, when we meet a new faith school before we deliver there. And it's a lot of extra work that you put in. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. I've been sat in meetings with people who, you know, some staff members who are not happy for us to be there and who will challenge the content that we put into our sessions and things like that. You don't compromise on the information and on your values because we can't do that. We have to have some integrity and we can't alter the content to the point where it's not accurate anymore. But we can accommodate for different schools' ethos and... I've seen the results of that. The new guidance for mandatory relationships and sex education does have a couple of bits in there about religion and it says that schools are free to teach from their faith's perspective. And I can understand why that makes people feel a bit uneasy when they first see it. It does make it clear that you can't then 
compromise on the mandatory content and you also have to make sure that you are complying with the Equalities Act and protected characteristics and that. But it is in there and research has shown that young people really want that and really respond to that. If we put up a wall and don't reach out to people, then the end result is that young people get excluded from RSE, basically. And the whole aim is to keep as many young people in RSE as possible. It's really easy when you teach people who think the same as you and tell you everything you want to hear. Like those sessions are, are nice and easy, but you're not always creating the biggest impact. And actually, we're not the best educators that we can be if we're not prepared to do a bit of that difficult work and actually be in environments that are a bit more challenging. All of the different parts of our identity are informed and impacted by sex ed, whether we experience sexual desire ourselves or not. So it's up to us to tailor the delivery to suit the person receiving it. For me, good sex education acknowledges those differences and lets them into the room rather than shutting them down. And sex ed shouldn't just be about harm prevention and avoiding unwanted pregnancies and STI transmission. Those things are important, but just as important are the conversations of how sex can be an exciting part of your life. I want every young person to get the education they need to be in the best possible position before they have sex and know that they're worthy of being treated with care and respect. Because that transition from childhood to adulthood is a really vulnerable part of our lives. And we don't often talk about how weird that moment is when sex stops being an abstract thing and starts being something that we do. I wanted to ask my mum a question I've never asked her before. What was it like when me and Maya started to have sex? It is weird as a parent. Yeah, it's another another little heartstring that gets cut. And it's sort of like, as a parent, did I say all the stuff? Did I teach her well? Is she going to be okay? Because now it's all up to her. And I just really hope I did my job enough to send that little boat sailing off. I remember just being really protective of you because I didn't want you to get hurt. I knew that the first time you have sex is generally, hopefully not a horrible experience, but certainly not one of the greatest sexual experiences you'll ever have. Also because it's been built up in your mind as such a big thing, like and usually planned, usually some planning has to go into it. Like, oh, well, my parents will be out for a bit. So, right, Tuesday, Tuesday night's the Sex night. Is happening. We're going to do it. Yeah, I know. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, it's all over. It's been very nice chatting. And also, as a parent, quite nice to know I didn't completely mess it up. You really didn't. <laughs> Young people don't just learn in classrooms and through curriculums. Young people learn from the relationships that they have with adults. Young people learn from watching other adults have relationships around them. It's about being able to hear a genuine question for, from a young person and to not shut down, to not be crippled by your own embarrassment and by your own shame and your own vulnerability. And maybe not being able to answer them all, but being able to, to point a child in the right direction and being able to convey that all of this is okay it's just part of being human it's just part of your learning journey
next time on In Touch. There are as many different ways of doing, living, being non-monogamous as you can possibly imagine. Being bi or pan, a lot of similar stereotypes about people who practice non-monogamy are people who are bisexual, like you're obsessed with sex or you're greedy. When we all come together and talk about our difficulties, our joys, our living experience, it normalises it, it opens that dialogue. In Touch was hosted by me, Ruby Ware. It was produced by B. Duncan with executive producer Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistants were Rory Boyle and Mars West. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>